Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. We all know that two wrongs don't make a right. We know that we all have the right to be wrong. But what shouldn't happen is rights that aren't rights being turned into rights, only the wrong rights. On today's episode, first we'll grant rights of equity, and then we'll be given the illusion of rights. So put down that steak knife and pick up that salad shooter, and exercise your right to shut up while all your stuff is being taken. And remember, right after the ending bumper, goal update number two. And now, right or wrong, here we go. If you'll allow me to get my nerd on for just a moment, back in 1982, Doctor Who, the original series, not the reboot, starting in, what, like 2005, they released their next story entitled Castrovolva. I'm not going to go into some detailed review, just know that Doctor Who is a British science fiction show with the main characters traveling to various locations in time and space. Well, they landed on this planet named Castrovolva. There was a city on this planet set high atop a rocky hill with sheer cliffs around the city. Fun fact, they got the name from an M.C. Escher lithograph printed in 1930 showing the Abruzzo village of Castrovolva in Italy, which sat atop a sheer cliff. Anyway, arch-nemesis of the Doctor, named the Master, unbeknownst to the Doctor and his companions, actually created the city they found themselves in. In an attempt to kill the Doctor, the Master designed this city to slowly collapse on itself through a process of recursion. Basically, the city started to fold in on itself, making it impossible to escape, with the end result being the destruction of the city and all who were inside it. As the episode reached its climax, we saw what looked to be images looked at through a series of broken mirrors. Running down one corridor would lead you right back to the beginning of that same corridor, or taking a staircase up would actually bring you down. The entire city was a jumbled, disjointed mess, and all the inhabitants were trapped. And this, this is what I picture in my brain when I read the news today. It seems like the world is folding in on itself. Nothing makes sense anymore. Some people see that it's a disaster, but too many, if not most, are willing to look at the world piecemeal and believe that everything is fine. Well, I'd argue that piecemeal, it's still not fine, but if you take the time to put the pieces together, you realize that nothing makes sense, and the insanity is moving at an ever-quickening pace toward ultimate destruction. Found on NotTheBee.com, headline... UK Medical Journal Lancet wants revolutionary shift away from human-centered healthcare to ecological equity because all life is equal. Now, this article references the highly respected UK Medical Journal, The Lancet. I'm not even being sarcastic there. So we'll jump directly to that site and review their analysis of our current world rather than hang out in Not the Bee. Honestly, I kind of made that horse, you know, sound when I read the headline thinking that this was an example of a right-wing news source just kind of overreacting now yeah, we'll get there the Lancet per the prestigious online journal Wikipedia quote is a weekly peer-reviewed general medical journal and one of the oldest of its kind it is also the world's highest impact academic journal it was founded in England in 1823 now I admittedly don't have any knowledge of The Lancet, except that I know there have been a lot of articles and studies published about COVID that would be canceled on Twitter and 
Facebook and YouTube. Based solely on what I've heard, it seems that they simply report the data and analyses without getting into the whole woke rhetoric whatever of our current day. At least that's what I thought. Eh, but I could be wrong. In an editorial piece on TheLancet.com, the new term being pushed is now One Health. The article in question is entitled, quote, One Health, A Call for Ecological Equity. Okay, before we continue, we must understand the difference between equality and equity, because words matter. A cartoon was drawn fairly recently to illustrate this difference. It shows three people standing outside the outfield fence of a baseball game, wanting to watch the game. Each person has a crate that they can step up on in order to see over the fence. The problem comes in with the heights of the three people. One is tall, one is medium, or I'd like to think average height, and then apparently we have a little person. Now, with each person having their own crate, the tall man stands with the top of the fence about mid-belly. The medium-height man has his head fully over the fence, and the short man can still not see the game. That is labeled as equality, each person having one box to stand on. Equity, however, in the right-hand panel of the cartoon, shows that the short man gets two crates, the medium man gets one crate, the tall man gets no crate, and with that, they can all see over the fence. So what's wrong with equity? Well, nothing if the tall man looked over and offered the short man his box as a charitable act. The problem with the equity that is discussed these days is that the tall man would have been held at a figurative gunpoint and be told to give up his box to the short man. Think of this as the concept of affirmative action with regard to college or diversity quotas placed on employers or an unfair unequal income tax code or reparations being exacted and demanded of the taxpayer with the correct or incorrect skin color. Bottom line, equity is fine if it's through charity. It's coercive and evil if it's demanded of you. Unfortunately, in nearly all cases, equity means the latter in our world today. And this is where I'm afraid we find the Lancet leaning now as well. Apparently, the idea of One Health is advanced to the point that there is a One Health high-level expert panel, as well as a four-part series on One Health and global health security. Now, this editorial starts, quote, The notion that the well-being of an individual is directly connected to the well-being of the land has a long history in indigenous societies. Nowadays, the term One Health has become an important concept in global health. The One Health high-level expert panel defines One Health as an integrated, unifying approach that aims to sustainably balance and optimize the health of people, animals, and ecosystems. It recognizes the health of humans, domestic and wild animals, plants, and the wider environment, including ecosystems, are closely linked and interdependent. Now, at this point... I'm still making the horse noise, you know, the I think we can all agree that there's a balance in the ecosystem, and plants, animals, humans, even bacteria and viruses are part of our world and the operation of it. Eh, they go on. Quote, Although the series focuses on pandemic preparedness, One Health goes way beyond emerging infections and novel pathogens. It is the foundation for understanding and addressing the most existential threats to societies, including antimicrobial resistance, food and nutrition insecurity, and climate change. Okay, I'm still okay at this point. 
I may not agree with their points and or solutions, but I'm still hanging with them on their premises. And, and then the second paragraph, cleverly, almost deviously placed directly after the first paragraph, quote, Modern attitudes to human health take a purely anthropocentric view that the human being is the center of medical attention and concern. One health places us in an interconnected and interdependent relationship with non-human animals and the environment. The consequences of this thinking entail a subtle but quite revolutionary shift of perspective. All life is equal and of equal concern. This understanding is fundamental to addressing pressing health issues at the human-animal-environment interface. For example, providing a growing global population with healthy diets from sustainable food systems is an urgent, unmet need. It requires a complete change to our relationship with animals. The Eat Lancet Commission takes an equitable approach by recommending people move away from an animal-based diet to a plant-based one, which not only benefits human health, but also animal health and well-being. Okay, so let's, let's just take a little look at a few of the statements in that paragraph, a few of the words and phrases. Anthropocentric. Well, that means human-focused. Literally, humans at the center, for lack of a better term, of the universe. Non-human animals. Okay, the implication of this, of course, is that we are nothing but human animals, you and I. See, we're all just animals. Just some have evolved to humans, some have not. All life is equal. Now, they're calling human animals, animal animals, as well as bugs, microbes, plants, and trees, all alive. They're calling them all alive. Sustainable food sources. These are non-animal sources. You and I may think that animals are a sustainable food source as we can continue to produce livestock, as has been done for thousands of years, but they define sustainability as non-animal sources, you know, plants. And as we're seeing more and more, bugs. Everyone wants us to eat bugs like crazy these days. Benefits human health. Well, says who? The assumption is that vegetarians or vegans are healthier. Have you seen some of them? I don't think there's any data out there that shows a vegetarian lifestyle results in greater health. I think there's other studies that probably show it's the opposite. More importantly, though, benefits animal health and well-being. And there you go. Because remember, we're all animals, just some are humans and some are animal animals. Then they move into what's called the false cause fallacy, they try to connect COVID and this One Health concept, and there's no connection there. Not for a rational, logical, data-driven human animal, at least. They say, quote, The COVID-19 pandemic provides an important example of the need for a One Health approach. Analyses of the successes and failures in managing the pandemic have prioritized health systems and the provision of vaccines and antivirals. Let me just break in right there, because... Of a brand new, never-before-seen virus sweeping over the globe, we put emphasis on the health systems, vaccination, which was foolish as it turns out, and antivirals, which is what ivermectin is. So for many of us in many countries around the world, we were castigated, bullied, and denied antivirals because, um, well, apparently because Fauci said we couldn't have them. Now, I'm all for holistic types of medicines and treatments if that's your bag. I'm becoming more convinced that that may be the right way to go. But for most of us, when we're sick, we seek treatment by so-called professionals, although even that's questionable at this point. 
and drugs. But apparently that's the wrong approach. They continue, quote, But understanding the causes of the pandemic demands a broader ecological perspective. This lesson has not been fully learned, and so we remain susceptible to future lethal emerging infectious diseases. The One Health series recommends the involvement of more environmental health organizations to better integrate environmental, wildlife, and farming issues to help address challenges relating to disease spillover. Oh, sure. Oh, that's fine. That's, uh, that's no problem if you want to study things. How about gain-of-function research on various viruses with the goal of making a super virus that can be released intentionally or not on the human population, you know, for reasons? How about study that? You know, just the fact that they're continuing to push the stupid idea that this was simply a naturally occurring leap from an animal to a human, that alone is infuriating to me, just being honest. Nobody believes that anymore. They don't believe that. But that's the narrative. And if you can piggyback off of that narrative, push your latest equity agenda, well, that's money in your pocket, to be sure. Let's continue with their editorial. This is full of just little golden nuggets. Quote, One huge concern is the risk of worsening inequalities as One Health networks are largely situated and resourced in high-income countries. The current One Health architecture of institutions, processes, regulatory frameworks, and legal instruments has led to a fragmented, multilateral health security landscape. Okay, so the wealthy countries are the ones that can afford to do the stupid things. That's what they're saying. We're the ones that have this idea that we're so smart, that we're so in tune to how this world and the ecological system works, that we just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we need to change what's been done for millennia in order to save the planet. While those poorer nations, oh, they're just too dumb to know any better. They're just farming and growing livestock and eating meat like planet-hating Mother Earth killers like they've been doing, you know, forever. I gotta ask at this point, which nations exactly are the backward ones? Uh, we go on, quote, As the second paper in the series points out, a more egalitarian approach is needed, one that is not paternalistic or colonial in telling low-income and middle-income countries what they should do. For example, demanding that wet markets be closed to halt an emerging zoonosis might be technically correct, but if it does not account for those who make their livelihoods from such markets, One Health will only worsen the lives of those it claims to care about. <laughs> ah, the wet markets. <laughs> Shut them down. They create lab-grown and created and released viruses right there in the wet market. The lab-grown in the wet market. It sure is nice of the One Health overlords to recognize the little people. You know, we want to save the animal animals and the plant animals. I mean, that, you know, sure, sure. But, but not at the expense of the human animals, at least for now, right? Quote, decolonization requires listening to what countries say and what their needs are. As the global economic crisis continues, the World Bank forecasts a sharp downturn in growth and soaring debt that will hit developing countries the hardest. One health needs to be implemented sensitively. Hmm. Decolonization. Are we seriously, literally colonizing any countries right now? I mean, by the strict definition, yeah, probably, but not by how they mean it. They mean this is in the white man going to the country of color and white man explaining to them. You know what kind of colonization they might like. How about a reliable power grid? They might like that, you know, including nice powerful power plants like nice nuclear plants, 
They'd maybe like treatment facilities to bring fresh water all over. That would be a nice colonization. They'd like modern sanitation systems. They'd probably even like to have some sources of energy and heat, you know, like natural gas. But no, 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 no. They don't need those things. They need to learn how to live and farm and eat sustainably. They need to save the planet. And since we're on a roll, let's hit their final paragraph in this wonderful editorial on the series, which... Incidentally, they capitalize both the and series in the series, as if it's some sort of a god, which, I mean, if we're being honest, quote, the reality is that One Health will be delivered in countries not by concordance between multilateral organizations, but by taking a fundamentally different approach to the natural world, one in which we are as concerned about the welfare of non-human animals and the environment as we are about humans. In its truest sense, One Health is a call for ecological, not merely health, equity. Ah, yes, ecological and health equity. Thank you, oldest and most trusted medical journal, The Lancet, for fighting for the environment and non-human animal kind. And this, my friends, uh, this is where the medical industry is heading at this current time in history, apparently. I have no doubt that if the Lord tarries, this will crash and burn in a spectacular fireball, proving how imbecilic we humans are. But I have no idea how long that will take and how many lives will be destroyed in all the nations around the world while we decide to play God. So what do we do about this? You and I, you know, we're the peons in this scenario. We're the plebes, the commoners. We can't change the course of the series, and we can't change the direction of woke medicine. Do you see what I mean about the world seemingly folding in on itself? Get rid of fossil fuels, go all electric. Get rid of natural gas stoves, and yes, that idea has not gone away, it's just been placed on the back burner for now, pun intended, and go all electric. Stop eating meat, eat plants and bugs, shut down the polluting power plants, go to all renewable sources that are unreliable and incapable of meeting demand by any stretch of the imagination. Stop healthcare as we know it, putting the human animal first. We must now make sure we hold up the animal and plant animals as well. Do no harm, right? Throw in the fact that we can't define a woman anymore. That a man pretending to be a woman on TikTok was asking where he was supposed to put a tampon. Children as young as kindergarten age, maybe even younger, being told that they should remove their breasts and penises because they like to play with the other gender's toys. But remember, we can't even define gender, so how could we even know this? And the seemingly never-ending list goes on. And at an ever-increasing pace, the city is collapsing on itself, and we're trapped and doomed. And what I didn't tell you about the episode of Doctor Who I mentioned, Castrovalva, is that in fact, although the inhabitants of the city were real in a sense, they were all part of this creation by the Master. There was one individual named Murgrave that was part of this creation. He was sympathetic to the Doctor and his companions, and he realized that he was simply a part of an evil simulation with the sole purpose being to kill the Doctor. But he could see. Where everyone else was completely confused and lost in the collapsing corridors of the city, Murgrave could clearly see not only the city but the single exit out of the city. As a final act of selfless sacrifice, he not only guided the doctor and his companions out of the city, but blocked the master from being able to follow. And as the doctor and his friends tumbled out of the stone corridor to the very real planet below the city, the city of Castrovalva ground and shuddered and disappeared in a mass of screams. What we need is a guide. We need someone that can see through the chaos, through the insanity, and guide us to the only exit available to us. Now, lucky for us, we have that guide. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is our guide through this mess. And the guidebook, the map, 
happens to be the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light. And God separated the light from the darkness the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God called the expanse heaven the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. God called the dry land earth and the waters seas. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. The sixth day. So plants were created on a different day than animals and humans. Animals were created unique and humans were created unique and placed in dominion over the plants and the animals and the planet as a whole. Why are we anthropocentric? Because God told us to be. He told us to be the center of creation. God first, a second. And inside of the creation, we were created as the top dog or human dog. David saying, quote, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas." O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In Genesis 9, we join Noah already in progress, quote, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So God gave us plants and animals, fish, birds, and land-dwelling animals for us to eat and have dominion over. Then God later gave strict direction as to what could be eaten by the Israelites. And then later still, God gave Peter the vision that then made the previously unclean animals with regard to what the Israelites could eat now clean. So I guess if you want to be a vegetarian, have at it. Pescatarian? Yeah, that's fine too. Bugatarian, I mean, whatever floats your boat, or a Metasaurus, that's fine too. And notice that neither Noah, nor Moses, nor Peter ever questioned God about the sustainability of what he was commanding or allowing. Notice that at no point did God tell us that we must ensure that there was ecological equity. In fact, back in Genesis 2, we see that God placed Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. We were created to tend to the earth, not preserve it or worship it. Even the curse on man after the fall was to work the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. 
and man was vegetarian until after the flood, but at no point did God mention having to be sustainable or to ensure he was maintaining the ecological balance of his plot of land. So our guide, the Bible, the words of God, tells us our position in this creation. It shows us who we are. It shows us why the world is the way it is. As for the exit of this collapsing world, well, that's Jesus Christ and his free gift of salvation. Jesus said, as recorded in Matthew, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That narrow gate is the exit of this world. Realize this, for those that are regenerated by Christ, that repented and believed in faith, this world, this collapsing, nonsensical, broken mirror system that we seem trapped in, is our literal hell. This is the worst we'll ever have it. For those that are not saved, and that could be, likely is, at least someone that's listening to this now, this is your heaven. This corrupt, disjointed, sin-cursed, angry world is literally you living your best life now. If you haven't come to Jesus in repentance and faith, might I suggest that you open the guidebook, understand who you are, why this world is the way it is, who God is and who Jesus is, understand the sacrifice made, and then run to him. Turn off of the broad way to destruction, join the path to the narrow gate. That act alone won't fix the insanity that's engulfing our world, but it will give you clarity. It will give you hope and joy because of our sovereign God that has not lost control of his creation. It will give you an understanding that all things happen for our good and, most importantly, for God's glory. And it will help you see the lost world through his eyes and the importance of telling others of the hope you have within you. And one by one, we can make a difference, even as this world grinds to a chaotic end. A little riddle for you. When is your stuff my stuff? Give up when I'm the government. Huh? Huh? Funny, right? Uh, no, no, not really. Unfortunately, this is one topic that shouldn't exist, but it does, and I, for the life of me, can't figure out how. But before I forget, welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 24. This is part six in our look at the amendments to the Constitution, in which today we'll cover amendment number five, otherwise known as the Fifth Amendment. <clears throat> so I guess before we go any further, we should probably look at what the text reads. Quote, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Okay, so this one is uh, kind of interesting as it covers a couple different topics <laughs> in the same amendment, and they don't really seem to go with each other, while the next three amendments seem like they'd be a better fit to kind of mash together into one. But the early Congress, James Madison, inspired by George Mason, many others, eh, they were pretty smart and they wrote things the way they did for a reason. Unfortunately, as we found with the other amendments, anywhere that politicians today can find a crack, you know, a chink in the armor, well, they'll start to rip and tear away at it in order to interpret or reinterpret the clear meaning and intent of the text. So what do we see in this amendment? Well, really it breaks down into six parts. 
And that's what we're going to cover. So the first part. Nobody can be held or detained for a capital or infamous crime unless an indictment by a grand jury is returned. Now, there's a caveat to this. We'll get to that next. So think of a capital or infamous crime as a felony at the federal level. Things like drug, firearm, fraud charges, things like that committed on federal property or across multiple states. So as much as many of us or most of us would like to see certain criminals that commit certain crimes eh, to be dealt with as swiftly and severely as possible... Well, even criminals have rights. I mean, unless you slowly or ambled your way through the corridors of the Capitol, politely interacting with those around you on January 6th, eh, then you're guilty no matter what, and you need to have your rights taken away and be thrown in solitary confinement, beaten and re-educated for years. But if you're not one of that type of low form of scum, then you have rights. One of them is this first one. You have to have an indictment placed on you by a grand jury. Now, that said, I've been on a grand jury. Let me tell you, uh, it was, um, it was, uh, it was something. And, and that I can say for sure. Now, I can't say anything about any sort of the cases, right? Because that's illegal. But there was one very interesting witness who came in in wrist and ankle shackles who told us all about the drug trade. And when asked, it had nothing to do with the case, but when asked if marijuana was a gateway drug, uh, he laughed and said that it absolutely was a gateway drug. That's how they get almost everyone. So that's kind of information that I really think should be passed to someone. Anywho, a grand jury indictment isn't difficult to get, I'll be honest. The basic process is you sit in a room with a bunch of other people that don't want to be there, except for the one, two, maybe three individuals that just live for this. and You know who you are. The prosecution comes in, they present the evidence, present witnesses, everyone but we jurors remain as they leave, and then we discuss, and then we can vote to either indict or not, or we can determine that we need more evidence. We have subpoena power if we so choose to exercise it. It's not very exciting. And to be honest, when I was sitting on it, I voted to indict every single time because the prosecution had what I thought was a solid enough case to at least bring it to a jury trial. Anyway, that's the basic process. You must have charges that pass the smell test in order to hold someone or charge someone with a crime. Number two, the caveat to the above has to do with the military. Now, I don't know the military system. I'm not going to spend any time on it, but unless you live under a rock, you know that the military justice system is different than the civilian system. Now, why exactly is there a difference? I don't know, to be honest. I would think that maybe as a member of the military, you're held to a different standard of discipline, and to violate that expectation to violate your oath, that carries a potentially more severe penalty. With regard to the land or naval forces, and by extension air force as well, and the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, well, I read that time of war clause, and I thought that that probably only applied to the militia, not the other permanent branches. And so doing a little digging, I did find that in 1987, the Supreme Court took on a case, and they also came to that view. So I guess that's the view we'll go with. So the armed forces are always an exception to this grand jury clause. While the militia is treated as civilians during times of peace, military members during times of war. So as we spoke about in the third part of this amendment series regarding the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, the militia would be akin to the National Guard today. 
and the amendment would bolster the argument that I made regarding that amendment, that it's actually stating the understanding that a state military-style fighting force is necessary for a state to maintain sovereignty, maintain security, right? And therefore, the citizens need to be armed as well, so as to keep the balance of power closer to neutral. During times of war, civilians are still treated as civilians with regard to crimes, federal felonies. Ergo, the civilians with the right to bear arms is not considered a militia per the Second Amendment, but the militia, say the National Guard today, when in the duties of the Guard is considered military personnel, when not in Guard duty is considered a civilian. Hopefully that made sense. Third, the third clause is the double jeopardy clause. You can't be tried twice for the same crime. If you're found innocent, they can't keep trying the case until you get a sympathetic judge or jury. Now, that gets a little muddled, I think, with appeals, but if you're going to allow the defense to appeal a guilty ruling, you must allow the prosecution the same ability, and eventually the appeals run out. And then we get into the difference between a civil and a criminal trial. For those of you that remember the white Ford Bronco driving down the 405 by Al Cowlings, followed by a mass of flashing cherries and blueberries all after O.J. Simpson for the murders of his wife and friend or acquaintance, which was nearly 30 years ago already. I remember watching it in my senior homeroom in high school. Anyway, O.J. was first put on trial criminally, which somehow he was found not guilty. But then later, he was put on trial for the same thing, but in a civil trial. Now, this is not violating the double jeopardy clause, as the motives of the suits are different and the penalties of the suits are different. But what couldn't happen and what can never happen is another trial of O.J. Simpson for murder with a different judge, hoping to find that judge or jury that will finally convict him. Right or wrong, once ruled upon, that's it. Fourth, you cannot be compelled to testify against yourself. And this is where you see people plead the fifth. They're calling into play the fifth amendment, saying the Constitution grants them the right to clam up and say nothing. Now, I know that when someone does that, we're supposed to just take that sort of plea as non-testimony. But come on, we all know that when that happens, it's because they're guilty, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, probably most of the time, to be honest, but not all the time. You've probably all heard the quote, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and to remove all doubt. Similar to the biblical proverb, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Now, in my specific career, I've been part of a number of audits, either by internal company auditors or outside firms from customers or federal regulators. The key to a successful audit, besides knowing what you're talking about and ensuring you're doing what you say you're doing, is to shut up. Just answer the question they ask. Nothing more, nothing less. They're trained to allow for long, uncomfortable pauses, knowing that most people just can't take it, and they'll start to spill the beans on something loosely related to the question that was previously asked, which may lead to some sweet, tasty, audit findings. I've witnessed this with my own eyes, internally screaming like a poo from The Simpsons the entire time. You know what you could do, a poo? Yeah, shut up. You could fake your own death. Oh, would you shut up? All you need is a car bomb and I you... can't believe you don't shut up. <laughs> this is where the Fifth Amendment helps. You're just saying that you choose to shut up rather than misspeak and, you know, hose yourself by doing so. 
Along with this, you can't be forced to testify against yourself. You can't be tortured, bribed, or otherwise coerced to testify. That's illegal. Which kind of brings us to number five. You cannot be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Kind of goes along with being compelled to testify against yourself. As in, they, they can't take your stuff. They can't threaten your life. They can't just throw you in the tallest tower to coerce you into doing so. But this also stands alone as legally the various authorities have no right to take your life, your freedom, or your stuff unless the legal system grants them that right. <sighs> Income civil asset forfeiture. Now, how can this be a legal thing? I, I just don't know. It's one of the most criminal acts that's being done by every law enforcement agency out there, or at least most of them. This is the... I think totally illegal, process of just confiscating personal possessions, usually cash or weapons or vehicles, from people just because. From 2010 to 2020, per IJ.org, IJ standing for Institute for Justice, at least $68.8 billion has been confiscated by law enforcement across the country from citizens. This is literally people that cash out their life savings and decide to travel the country and they get pulled over for some reason and the cop takes the money because he decides that, usually for no reason, well, maybe it's stolen or maybe it's drug money or whatever. This is someone with $30,000 in cash going to purchase that vehicle from someone. They get stopped and the cash is taken. This could be an individual going target shooting with his collection of firearms in the car and the cop accusing him of some sort of gun crime takes all the guns and ammo and accessories. This has been given the nickname policing for profit. As if this isn't bad enough, trying to get your money back is just impossible. To start, studies show that nearly 80% of those that have had their money and possessions taken are never actually charged with a crime. Now, you'd think they'd just be given their stuff back, but, but no, that's not how the system works. See, if those things are never reclaimed, then it becomes property of the law enforcement agency. And, I mean, who couldn't use a little extra spending cash, right? What you'll find is that only a handful of people will even pursue the return of their property. If it was a gun or two that didn't have special meaning, if it was a few thousand in cash, what does it take to hire a lawyer for the next two years or more in order to fight the court battles to get your stuff back, right? It's just not worth it. And out of those that do fight it, less than half actually win. In addition, state laws have been starting to pop up to curb this abuse, but a loophole exists that allows the state agencies to hand over the seized property to federal agencies like the FBI. And the FBI, through a sharing clause of some sort, will just turn around and on average give about 80% of that value back to the original agency. But now the cash has been laundered through our federal government. It's quite the scam. How the Fifth Amendment doesn't squash this legalized theft, I have no idea. Just make sure that if you're bringing a wad of cash with you, have receipts of where you took it out of the bank or a paper trail of check stubs or something to justify how you came into possession of that money. Unfortunately, there's no way to protect yourself in all possible scenarios, so maybe just don't get pulled over if you've got a car full of guns or cash or whatever. Now, similar to the fifth part, we come to the sixth part. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. This one, I think, should be illegal also. Think of this as eminent domain, the ability of a government body to just take your private property and pay you for it if they deem that that property is needed for the common good or the betterment of society. 
This is taking the home and property of someone that's lived there his or her entire life because a new freeway that will reduce congestion and improve the commute of thousands of people every day is planned to go right through that property. Although not used as much as civil asset forfeiture, this is still an abused system and one that a government only has to prove this is for public use and for public good in order to be victorious. The only bright side is that they are to pay you just compensation, so fair market value. That's not a whole lot of consolation if you're losing the family home or a place you've lived and made your own for years or whatever. number of states have put in laws to strengthen the protections of the citizen, but if you're a property owner, you're still potentially subject to being a victim of eminent domain. So why would this even have been put into the Constitution? Well, I mean, it was fairly easy to see that as the country grew, as people claimed land, there may be the need to use a chunk of private property in order to benefit society. There are plausible real scenarios like pumping water or running utility lines that various governments have no other option available to them but to run it through that land. The problem generally happens when a government decides that they need that property because they deem their pet project to be a benefit to society when that's nothing more than a subjective feeling. There have been many times in our past that property has been seized, compensation has been given, and the property sits there dormant and stagnant for years on into the future because plans changed. This needs to be yet another criminal offense, I think, in most cases, compensation or not, and very clear, very specific, very strict rules need to govern this. So, a lot of stuff, a lot of rights packed into the Fifth Amendment, a lot more than just pleading the Fifth, which is probably what most people would think of when speaking of this amendment. And now, for the sake of my voice, we're going to have to stop it here for today. Hopefully you found this informational and somewhat entertaining. In Part 7, we'll take a look at the Sixth and hopefully the Seventh Amendments as they, along with the Fifth and the Eighth Amendment, are all along the same vein. So with that, we'll bring Part 6 of our look at the amendments to the Constitution in our ongoing American Genesis segment, to a close. So until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful. And until next time, God bless. Okay, goal progress report number two. How about you? Have you made some goals for 2023? How are you doing on them? Are you keeping up with them? All right. Remember, this is as of Tuesday, so let's see how things are going. Regarding my weight loss, using the magical power of diet and exercise, I mean, who knew, right? I lost 4.2 pounds over the last week. This puts me at 208.8 pounds, which is 5.6 pounds down from my starting weight. My goal was a loss of 1.5 pounds per week, and right now I'm averaging 2.8 pounds per week. Now, I'll be honest, this is not sustainable. At least I'd be really shocked if it was sustainable at that level, but clearly, as of right now, I'll take it. So this puts me in the nice, solid green for the weight loss goal. Unfortunately, as of last night, I've had a chest cold coming on, so I'll be taking a day or two off of working out. Just need to maintain the diet, so we'll see what effect that'll have next week. 
Regarding my reading, as of Tuesday, I had knocked out 466 pages so far in January as compared to my goal of 300 per month, so that goal is a solid green. That said, I was only able to read about 40 pages over the last week, so that actually is running behind the approximately 70 pages or so per week that I would have to read, but that's going to happen, right? I just need to pick up the pace a bit. This entire week, I've been running behind, it seems. I'm sure it'll ease up in the next week or decade or so. Okay, how about the Bible in a year by the end of September? Now, remember, this is the Bible in a year that I've creatively packed into only 1.75 years. That's not important right now. Remember, I'm reporting this as a percentage of the goal, 100% being on goal, above that is ahead of my goal, under that is behind the goal. Last week, I was at 67.5% of my goal. Remember, I'm counting back to the beginning of January, so I had some catching up to do. As of this Tuesday, I'm at 90.4% of my goal. So some good ground gained getting back on track right there. I'm putting that as a light green, nearly on target. And finally, devotions. Again, I'm scoring this the same way as the Bible reading. I give the same caveat. This goal, remember, was to hit the morning devotional a minimum of five out of seven days per week. As of last week, I was at 82.4% of my goal, and as of this Tuesday, I'm at 99.2% of my goal. So, right there. Now, this will be light green as well, because I'm not going to call it a solid green until I'm either at or exceeding my goal. And that's all for now. So, the desire to report success to all my loyal followers and listeners... And the fear of giving my disloyal listeners and mortal enemies even more fodder to attack me with. Do you attack with fodder? Anyway, the desire and fear are pushing me to succeed, so uh, it's working. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions, just let me know. Bye for now.